Welcome to Techplomacy Talk. My name is Kasper Klønge, I'm the Danish Tech Ambassador. Quantum is an expression you hear all the time, everything from quantum leaps to uh, anything that implies uh, discontinuity in uh, anything, technology or uh, ideas. Uh, in the context that we're going to be talking about it, quantum is short for quantum mechanics. It's a theoretical foundation of our understanding of all of nature. In fact, it's the most accurate theoretical description of anything we have, and it's a, a very well-developed theory of how nature works, not just at an atomic scale, but how it works on all scales. It's hard, it's uh, rather advanced mathematically, and it is confusing and counterintuitive in some of its implications about how atoms and molecules work. Um, but it's rather unarguably correct, uh, even though sometimes its interpretations Um, strike us as being uh, strange compared to the world that we believe we live in. In the context of technology, quantum is a way of approaching uh, information processing, information storage, and uh, communication uh, that takes advantages of certain aspects of quantum physics, indeed the most counterintuitive aspects of quantum physics, and uses them to enable technology in ways that hasn't been used so far. And it will hopefully be evident to our listeners that uh, you speak a, a fairly good uh, English. You are not necessarily from Copenhagen originally. You are, you are a U.S. citizen. Yes. Why are you in Copenhagen then doing this research in Copenhagen? Uh, I should say the Niels Bohr Institute is a, is a fantastic place to study and work. Uh, there aren't very many countries in the world that have put a physicist on their uh, money. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's a country uh, with a great tradition and respect for physical sciences because of Niels Bohr and the traditions that he established in the 20th century here in Copenhagen. Um, it's also a great city to live in. It's a great city to raise kids. Uh, every time any of my colleagues from any of my former employers come to visit, uh, they all usually leave by saying how clever it was for me to figure out that I should ditch my former American life and come and live and in Copenhagen. Disclaimer, you you did not pay me to say it. It's, it's honestly true. And, and I can actually 
you know, as, as a scientist, I feel like for every time I make a statement, I should offer some data that shows um, that it's true because, you know, that's, that's what I do for a living. Uh, you could say, how do we know that he's not just getting paid to say this? And I think the answer is, you know, I could have made a mistake in coming here. I could have quit my old job in a huff, you know, and, and moved here. And then three weeks later, woken up and said, my God, <laughs> what have I done? I can't speak this terrible language. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm doomed. But in fact, I've stayed. I've stayed for a long time and uh, raised my family here and uh, lived with my wife here and made friends here and, and really established a, a life and a scientific footprint and a center of uh, scientists and researchers and students uh, that's, um, I would say, uh, bigger and better than anything I've been involved with in my career. So we'll try and reach out to, to a wonderful Copenhagen and see if they can help sponsor this uh, podcast. <laughs> That's right. He's, he's currently <laughs> slipping me money under the table right now as we speak. <laughs> Let's go back to your, your topic, Charlie. Um, you explained a bit what quantum is. Now let's take it to, to one of the big topics on everybody's mind. What is quantum computing? And if you could sort of educate uh, all of us, you know, how, how advanced, how mature is that technology today? Where is it heading? A quantum computing began its life uh, as an idea. And the idea arises from the fact that the space in which quantum mechanics is formulated mathematically is a much bigger space than the space that we believe we live in. What I mean by space is, you know, here on Earth as we walk around, we have three dimensions that we live in and you can go up and down and sideways and, and, uh, and you can describe the position and the speed of anything that you describe as living within that space. But because quantum mechanics allows for states to exist in a multiple configuration before they're measured, you have to describe the space as having all of those possibilities in it, which means that it's a much, much bigger space than the space that we live in. And I think the idea of the question is, can we compute in that space rather than in the three-dimensional world that we live in? And you might think the mathematical space of quantum mechanics is an abstraction mm. and that the three-dimensional space that we live in is real. Mm. But I think that a quantum mechanics physicist would say just the opposite. Mm. Actually, it's that larger space that's real and that where we think we live is just an illusion mm. uh, created by the way our brains evolved to try to get through our days mm. and that we design computers and technology for today based on that illusion. Mm. But in fact, nature has taught us through the experiments of the 20th century and the beginnings of this century that there's a much richer space that really, really is there. And if you don't have to imagine it. It's, it's actually there all the time. And the trick is to try to build a machine that will compute in that space. The difficulty is that quantum mechanics as a theory has a, has a, a kind of a clause down in the fine print of the contract. And that clause is that once you measure the state 
Then it becomes a conventional state like the kinds that we're used to living in the three-dimensional world that we live in, and all of those magic dimensions of quantum physics disappear. And you could ask the deep, profound question, well, where do they all go? And we physicists have learned over the decades not to ask those questions. Mm. I mean, we don't know where they go. Mm. Okay. But, but just to be sort of very specific on this, if you, if you move away from uh, your sort of the matrix-like description yes. of the real world, um, the big game changer with quantum computing, because you move into, uh, into more dimension, is the computational capacity. In other exactly. words, you would be able to crack you know, problems in a much, much faster way, you would be able to, uh, to have almost unlimited access to computational capacity. Is, is that sort of a, a layman's description of why this a new technology could be uh, revolutionary? Yes, but let me answer a little bit more like a conservative scientist. I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry that I can't say nearly unlimited power. I mean, especially since nearly unlimited doesn't really have a specific meaning. I do have to put. I do have to put some. You have to bear in mind that my understanding is very. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> Fine. The, the the thing that I want to say is the class of problems that are acceleratable. Let's let, if I can use that word, acceleratable by the use of this higher dimensional space for computation, is itself a question at the forefront of research. What are the problems that if you were brought to the lab? and said, can you speed up this problem? I need to figure out you know, some shipping problem, and I've got the boxes that need to arrive in Cincinnati by tomorrow, and I don't know how to get them there on time. Can your quantum computer help me with my problem? We don't have a list of the problems that can be accelerated. Some existing problems that are very important from a technological point of view, in fact, frighteningly important, including all of internet security, are problems that are known that when this machine exists, those problems all get cracked. So there are classes of problems like the factoring of products of prime numbers, which is the basis of internet security and basis of national security and the basis of much of the secure communication and information storage that we have at our disposal today. Those all fall when quantum computers exist. There are other problems that are naturally quantum mechanics problems. And a natural quantum mechanics problem is one that fits onto a quantum computer. All of those problems are acceleratable. What's an example of a natural quantum mechanics problem? You might think, wow, I don't care about natural quantum mechanics problems. Yes, you do. Because drugs, medicine, and the workings of biology at the molecular scale, everything from neurotransmitters to how cancer cells are different from regular cells are molecular physics problems. And those are problems that are impossible to solve on conventional computers because, because of this high dimensional space, but fit naturally onto quantum computers. So those all fall when these machines of the appropriate scale exist. And, and one of the things people are worrying about now is how big do the machines need to be for any given problem? Does it exist today? Because uh, you know we, we visit a lot of places and say, come and see our quantum computing computer. Does it exist? Sure it does. Mm -hmm. Now, there are there's a lot of discussion about when will we have a quantum computer. And and I think it's a foolish discussion. Mm -hmm. We have quantum computers today. They're they're small and they're not very powerful relative to this fantastic technology of conventional computers that we've invented. If you take, 
you know, the great computational explosion of the 20th and 21st century and benchmark quantum computing against that, no, we haven't passed that point yet, although that will fall also relatively soon. You don't need a very big quantum computer to outpower a classical computer. Something like, you know, on the order of 100 bits, quantum bits, uh, will outpower a classical computer. Uh, the difficulty has to do with this measurement problem that I mentioned earlier, is that you have to have bits that don't get readily measured. And when you add 101 qubits, it's twice as powerful as 100 qubits. And 102 is twice as powerful as the 101. So the rate at which the power of the machine goes up when you add qubits is something that we're not used to. We're not used to seeing a doubling with the linear increase in the number of, of qubits. So I would say rather than wait for the event where we can call something a quantum computer, what we can say is that we have small ones today. You can go online and program them, and they're real, and they're, they're working. Um, whether you choose to be impressed with them or not is up to you, but they do exist. And next year, they'll be better, and next year, they'll be better. And remember, every time you add a qubit, you double the power. So uh, at what point do you say, now we have a quantum computer? Well, there's just no such question. And you know, we as scientists and engineers eventually will uh, just keep making them better and better and better. While conventional computers, which are also still getting better and better, software is developing, et cetera, um, won't get better as fast because the size scale of the chips now is such that you can't make the transistors denser or smaller and integrated into three dimensions. So those are not going to keep growing at this kind of rate. And I think that it is inevitable that these machines will outperform conventional machines uh, in the next few years. Oh, well, that's, a, that's actually not a hard question. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe help you ask me. I, I, I mean, if you really want to, like, nail me to the ground, I'm going to help you nail me to the ground. Perfect. So the question that you asked me was not, that's, a, that's like, a, like a, a, that's a wrestling move that I, I know how to get out of. Okay, sorry. Um, the answer to that question is probably within a year or two. The question that I think will, will help pin me to the ground will be when will the quantum computer outperform the classical computer on a problem whose answer we care about? That's a harder question. So we can make, we can make up problems now. And, and, and by constructing the problem carefully, we can make up a problem in which a quantum computer will very soon be able to outperform. It hasn't happened yet, hasn't happened yet, but will be able to outperform a classical computer at that problem that we made up.
and you ask, who wants the answer to that problem? Nobody wants the answer to that problem. But that wasn't the question you asked me. You said, when will it outperform? So for that one, easy, one or two years. I think that that's, that's, that's a straightforward one. Now, let's move to the next question, which is, when will it outperform problems that will change technology, save lives, make things more secure, generally improve life on Earth? That's harder. Charlie, let me answer the question in a slightly different way. Okay. In your world of research, how fast is sort of the development within the research that would be the basis for actually developing quantum computers that will be able to solve some of these issues? I mean, are we seeing massive resources being put into traditional research uh, in Denmark, in the US, and in, in the Far East that will enable scientists like yourself to make the, the sort of leapfrogging into uh, having quantum computers that can uh, solve real issues, uh, societal issues? Yes. Absolutely, we are seeing resources at a shockingly impressive level. Not shocking in the sense that th these resources are needed. I don't think there's any squandering of money. And you see it in, in, in uh, Europe, you see it in America, you see it in China, you see it really everywhere, that, that hardware, software, algorithms, and materials mm. for quantum computing are all being invested in at a tremendous rate. I think what we don't know is how much future investment will be needed. The, the, the difficulty is that there's really no option because this is such an important technology, computation in general, that we simply have to try. And, and there's no way around it. And the tools are expensive and the tools take a lot of brain power and a lot of technology and a lot of money to, to, to um, train people. People aren't well trained traditionally in these areas and so a lot of what we're doing here and a lot of what is necessary globally goes by the name of workforce development but what we really mean is training physicists to think like engineers, training software people to think like hardware people, training uh, engineers to know what Planck's constant is, and and um, this is a world that is more or less uninhabited uh, educationally, and so it's it's on the fly training for for a workforce. So workforce development is the first wave of this, and you could say as a as a frontier of of creating a quantum economy, the first thing you have to do is create a quantum workforce, yeah. and so w you could say it in parallel with the question that you asked, which is. How rapidly is the technology evolving due to the investments in Denmark, in the U.S., in Europe? I would say rapidly. And also, the creators of that advancement are also being created. That is, the young people across the hall in the lab yeah. are going from being trained as traditional physicists to starting to think not just about how the material works, but how the material can be used for computation. And that switch in perspective is a very important one. I think industry is also learning to understand what the frontier of scientific research looks like. I think that there's a education going on on both sides. Actually, one of the more interesting aspects of where you are today 
is that we are both in a university laboratory inhabited by bachelor's students and master's students and PhD students and postdoctoral fellows, but you're also in a Microsoft research laboratory. And, and uh, that means that there are Microsoft staff across the hall who are, you know, full-time Microsoft employees, including myself. And uh, that hybridization is, I think, I wouldn't say it's an essential ingredient for what we're trying to do, but it sure helps bridge a scientific endeavor with a technological endeavor. And... Uh, those kinds of investments with a lot of lessons learned and a lot of, you know, hard knocks of getting the details of those of that kind of collaboration right is, I think, where the future of this technology sits. I, I warned you about this, but we're going to try and get you a bit out of your comfort zone by focusing on sort of the, the international consequences or aspects of, uh, of quantum computing. Is there an arms race on quantum research? Sure, there is. Um, arms race is maybe not the term that I would use because you know the the end point of an arms race um, is either huge amounts of wasted money for unused weapons, or an even worse consequence, used weapons. So I I think that in terms of um, I'd rather find a different expression than than arms race because an arms race is is a race with no winners. You know, the best thing that can happen is you waste a lot of money. But I think that what what you can say is any hot problem is of technological relevance and any problem of technological relevance is of economic relevance. And I think that the battlefront between companies and the battlefront between nations is principally economic. And that's why I think the metaphor of an arms race is not the right one. Because in the arms race, it was not about economic advantage. It was about killing people. And the race that's involved in quantum technology, which exists between companies, it exists between nations, is, I think, a much healthier kind of race. It's a, it's a race to advance uh, a technology presumably for the betterment of society. I mean, if it turns out that the process by which nitrogenase fixes nitrogen to produce fertilizer uh, can be harvested at a technological level or at an industrial level to make inexpensive, low-cost, low-energy consuming fertilizer, that's not going to kill anyone. On the contrary, that's going to save billions of lives. But if you, if I, if you allow me to be the devil's advocate sure. for one second, I think if you, if you compare, and I know it's an unfair comparison, but if you compare quantum research to, let's say, the Star Wars project of, of the Reagan administration, that perhaps you could argue that that was a question of, sub, uh, of superiority, about making sure that you know, new technologies would not fall into the hands of totalitarian regimes. That's certainly an argument that you've heard in those days. Is it, is it similar with quantum research simply because of the magnitude of revolutionary uh, applicability of these new technologies? That it, it, it is a matter of getting there first. We'll come back to the question of breaking uh, encryption in a second. But, but being the first one that sort of commands this technology is going to be a massive advantage also from a more sort of traditional foreign policy power play, uh, seen through a power play prism. It's not the way the big players are 
behaving now? So my inclination is to say simply no. And again, as a scientist, I have to offer data to support my observations. And here's my data. If you go across the hall, you'll meet people in the Center for Quantum Devices from 27 different countries. And there's no walls or barriers between what they're doing. And Microsoft is supporting this research. It's an American company or an international company. One of my very best postdoctoral fellows has now set up a laboratory in China. Is he competing with me? Sure he is. All my former students are competing with me, usually most of them winning. That's what young people do. They learn from their advisors. It's so annoying to think of. Well, you know, and, 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 and we've talked about the question, you know, is there, is there a security risk associated with internationalism in general? And my answer is not at this stage of research. There's too much to learn. If, if there was some group of people who knew how to build a quantum computer and all we needed to do was implement that knowledge at an industrial technological level, then you could start using the language of security risk. But we don't know how to build one now and there's a lot of discoveries and there are an immense number of smart people around the world. So the way that we've recognized and by, by we, I mean both the universities and Microsoft, and these other companies, I think, are doing the same thing. To recognize this security risk is to say we're at an early stage of a technology where, where there's just simply too much to learn f- to start cutting off the intellectual resources of the rest of the world. It's too hard of a problem to, to do that. I think that this is a, an- another difference with the arms race metaphor, which I want to, you know, now that I've thought about it for a couple of minutes, I want to kind of, you know, strongly push back on. Not only is this the opposite in which good will come of this rather than evil, if you can use that word, but there wasn't really deep mysteries in how to build bombs. It wasn't something in which there needed to be anything to discover. It was just a matter of economics, of buying them. And so I think that the big difference is is that when we talk about quantum technology, now, at this moment, we're talking about an intellectual frontier. And that takes a global effort. Intellectual frontiers do not benefit from erecting walls. But if we take the, the founder of this institute, Niels Bohr, and we go back to back in the day when he was also involved in the, um, in the nuclear weapons program. I think you know, my understanding of Niels Bohr is that he, he had real reservations about his own involvement post the development. The Copenhagen Letter is a good example of that. The ethical dimension of developing technologies like quantum computing, do you think at some stage researchers like yourself, Charlie, other researchers will say, you know, if applied in a constructive way for solving some of the big global issues, you know, healthcare, who knows climate change, etc. You know, this is a fantastic path to go down, but we have to make sure that we have boundaries, whether they are regulatory or, let's say, due to an international rules or, or international legal framework, then we have to make sure in advance of the technologies maturing that, that we set those structures in place to avoid uh, you know, a more malign application of those technologies. Sure. Do you, do you think that? Absolutely, and we see it happening. We don't need, we don't need to wait for quantum computing to see that scientists globally have stepped up to this 
responsibility. You see it in the CRISPR system, for instance. You, you see it in uh, AI and, and face recognition technology, where the inventors themselves, I don't know whether they ever did, but there's a kind of a mythology around the idea that scientists during some eras excused themselves from the responsibility of thinking about the ethical consequences or the social consequences of their own work. I, I sort of doubt that that ever happened anyway, but at least it's, it's, a, it's a good myth to, to start the conversation. Uh, certainly now we see that the, that the role of the scientist in society, as technology has become so advanced that it's almost impossible for... Um, a non-scientist, including a non-scientist policymaker, to evaluate the potential destructiveness or, or benefits of a technology, that scientists uh, are obliged, first of all, ethically obliged, and second of all, they've been supported by governments. It's you know it's kind of part of the social contract that you know we will support you to discover the truth, but when we need you to comment on the value of the truth, we rely on you also to tell us the truth. About, about how that can be applied. I think that there's a general acceptance among scientists of accepting that social contract and accepting the ethical implications of their own work. And, and again, there are these examples now where, with the exception of bad actors, yeah. and they are the exception, that the spirit of what is science uh, has come to embrace that responsibility. And, and again, just being a, a government person, um, trying to look a little bit into the future and, and you know correct me if I'm wrong on this one Charlie but but if, if you see technology like quantum computing being developed incrementally sort of step by step there isn't a big bang where from one day to the other all of a sudden you have the technology available and if you look at cybersecurity, which is I think one of the main topics uh, of, of our day and age um, having technology that would instantly break current encryption would of course be a dramatic game changer would fact have enormous consequences internationally, privately, uh, for, for governments, etc. You bet, you bet. So, so as you can probably uh, uh, already guess, my, my question is rather, you know, will it actually be possible for us to put regulatory um, conditions around these new technologies, or will it all of a sudden be there, and the ones that will, will, will pass the goalposts first will actually have you know, unlimited power, basically a lot of opportunities for doing both good things, but potentially also doing bad things. Well, if I can depart from the script for a second and give you my personal view on all of this, I think stressing too much about cybersecurity is a little bit like arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic when climate change is upon us, and that if we don't all get on the same team and worry about climate change, um, cybersecurity is going to be like the deck chairs. So I think that the world will recognize, you know, and I'm not going to use metaphors of, of uh, 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 raising all boats because, in fact, I'm a little worried that those boats, in fact, are going to be raising on their own, um, that we better all get on the same team and think about technological solutions that address some of these, and social solutions and uh, um, cultural solutions that address the catastrophe that may be awaiting us and, and that appears to be awaiting us. I should be a little more, you know, clear about that. Yeah, P 
appears to be awaiting us, that if we don't get on the same team and realize that national boundaries and uh, secret documents are like the least of our problems right now, that, you know, it's not clear we deserve (laughs) a a planet Earth that's uh, habitable. That's a, a super fair point. Why don't we stay on that just for one second? Is quantum computing going to be also a game changer in finding climate change and finding sustainable uh, solutions in a broad range of different areas? I think I think I'm not um, unrealistically optimistic to say yes to that question, and the reason why is because I think that uh, two things: one, um, any powerful computational technology um, will assist us in reversing the effects of our own misbehavior. Maybe, it, it, maybe what we'll have to do is uh, ask it what we should do. Maybe, we won't be able, maybe we're not smart enough to figure out what to do. But I envision a future filled with machines, classical and quantum, in which we say to the machines that we've built, help us, we're too stupid to figure out the solution to this problem. What should we do? And we should listen because those machines are going to be smart. And if you think that there's a boundary between the kind of smarts that can answer a philosophical question like what should we do about climate change and a machine that can win at chess, then we'll have to disagree because I just don't see, I don't see a boundary between what gets called intelligence and what gets called uh, clever chess play. They're the same thing as far as I'm concerned. And I, and I think that when we talk about hard problems, climate change is a hard problem. I mean, we, we traditionally, when we talk about computational problems, we talk about hard problems, which have a technical definition. But now once you introduce AI into the conversation and you imagine that there will be machines that can think, then we have to expand the realm of hardness to include problems that we don't know how to solve and that... I think, I think you should stretch your imagination to imagine that we will simply ask these machines, help us, we can't figure out a solution. And that's actually the real game changer, that the machines will be able to not only find patterns that we won't recognize ourselves, but actually also ask the right questions. That's right, and that's happening now. I mean, they, you know, it, it's not just chess players who are having, you know, having their, um, their job security threatened by... Um, by computers. I think that uh, we will be living in a world in which we will rely, as we do now, on computers to do things that we can't do. And I hope that that will remain true and apply to problems that we really deeply care about. Not to say that Airline scheduling is not a, a, a critically important problem. It obviously is a critically important problem, and we obviously rely on computers to do it. But it's not a problem of the scale of, say, climate change. It's not existential. It's not an existential problem, uh, maybe unless you're a pilot or something. But I, but, but that's right, and I think that that it would be, it would be uh, overly pessimistic, yeah. I would say, to think that computation of all sorts, including, of course, quantum computing, which will become some frontier of computation, um, won't be relevant for these deep problems that we really care about, but only in, only interesting for problems like cybersecurity, et cetera. I, th- I think that it's, um, 
it would be it would be unduly pessimistic to think that the kinds of problems that we face as a society and as a species um, will, for some weird, malicious reason, not be amenable to improvement by these machines. You should, you should expect that you know, quantum computers would be in a data center similar to the ones that yes, today. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, somewhere remote, and you, you link up the two fiber cables, uh, etc. And actually, two questions. I, I think the discussion on data centers today is also focused on the energy requirements that will drive those sensors, uh, which is uh, is quite uh, large. Do you have the same problem with uh, quantum? No, because these are low energy devices. It takes a little bit of it takes a little bit of horsepower to cool to absolute zero, yeah. and it takes a little bit extra horsepower to cool a classical device that's generating heat. But it's not, you know, to go from room temperature to zero is not the same as from cooling uh, a highly integrated chip. So, so no, it won't be. It won't be the kind of energy hog that we see uh, in conventional classical data centers. So there might actually be a sustainability. Of course. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I I think that that we would have to ask ourselves some hard questions if it turned out that in order to get a factor of a million speed up in computational power, it costs you a factor of a million in energy, then we scratch our heads and say, well, is that a good deal? You know, maybe we should just build a million machines and, and have it be a million times bigger if it's going to be used. If there were no advantage in terms of energy, then I think the whole discussion might become moot. We, may, we, we, we might do the analysis at the end and say, who cares? Just build a data center a million times bigger. But that's not the case. The case is, and again, I have to go back to this, the 101st qubit doubles the power. The 102nd qubit doubles the power. The 103rd qubit doubles the power. So when we're talking about a powerful machine, we're not talking about a data center. We're talking about a chip. You know, a chip that I'm making is with my hands, you know, something that I hold in my hands. You have to put stuff around it. But I'm talking about a chip that has the power of a data center. So it's both computational capacity or capabilities, but it's also efficiency, basically. Yes. And actually reducing also the sizes of the data centers of supercomputers as well. We're coming towards the end of, the, of this podcast, unfortunately. Um, I have two questions left for you, Charlie. And the first one is sort of, again, um, lifting up to the helicopter view, looking uh, globally on, on quantum research today. Can you, in a short version, sort of point to where are the epicenters of where research and development of quantum computing, quantum network, where, where is that happening globally? In, in, in my view, there is, uh, there is excellence in Europe and there's excellence in the US, and they are comparable. In fact, one of if I were to if I were to tease apart the difference between the U.S. and Europe right now, they've both made uh, comparable uh, investments in quantum technology, respectively. The flagship in Europe and the uh, quantum initiative in the U.S. They're they're almost matched in terms of their amounts of money. Uh, if I could identify uh, a difference, it's that 
European industry has been reluctant to invest, with some exceptions, not, not, you know, not every company, but has been reluctant to invest in long-term research to produce a technology. I think that they feel a little closer to the shareholders, if you want to call it that, or, or the next report, and um, aren't in a position to say, we know that this is five years of investment or 10 years of investment before we start to see the fruits of our labor. The way you see Intel, which invests in Europe, IBM, Google, Microsoft. Um, so the, in, the large companies in Europe have been a little shy to invest, not, not unreasonably, but it's a, distinct, it's a distinction, let's say, between the US. On the academic front, I, I think that you can point to U.S. universities. You know, Yale has done a huge uh, effort in uh, superconducting qubits. There's fantastic work at, at uh, Maryland. In, but, they're, but they're, you know, I could name them one at a time. But usually, you know, you take Yale as an example where they're, you know, probably the leading U.S. university in superconducting qubits because of a small handful of of researchers and, a, and an equally small handful of graduate students and postdocs who are who are doing fantastic work out of Yale. So would you say, oh well, that's the you know like the U.S. footprint is yeah. a couple of those places? Well, they're kind of almost one-off examples where one or two yeah. professors and their and their researchers are the cutting edge of a whole country. Yeah. And if you look if you look in Europe, you'll see places like Copenhagen, mm-hmm. Delft. TH, in the Netherlands, yeah, yeah. Um, that that are uh, also at the cutting edge. But I think that the important point to make is they're not at the cutting edge because they hired a thousand people to work on this problem. They're at the cutting edge because there's three or four professors that are doing fantastic work and spawning these generations of students. And you know, to take Copenhagen an example, I I know that I'm familiar with or most familiar with. It's not about the research. I mean, I emphasized earlier on, and I want to emphasize it again. It's not about the research that we're producing, although that is good and fine and state-of-the-art and all that's great. But there's a much bigger multiplier. The multiplier is the people that we're producing who then leave here and are now sitting at Harvard and who are now sitting at MIT. And, and that sending out of trained people who will then plant their own seeds is how Copenhagen, Denmark, is making its mark on the map. So two things, people matters, and the, the cost fertilization between different research institutions are critical, actually. Absolutely them. critical. John, the last question is always the same question, and that is, you know, what is the question I should have asked you and what is your answer to that one? So we, we left the easy one at the end here. I'll pick a fun one, I think, instead of, a, instead of maybe the most serious one, which is if Denmark wants to recreate its international preeminence in quantum, if Copenhagen's special role as the home of quantum physics uh, wants to have a second chance in the 21st century, 
what should it do differently than it's doing now? And I think that the answer is, first of all, the foundations system in Denmark is um, the envy of the world. The kind of funding that we have here, the Center for Quantum Devices from the Danish National Research Foundation, the Willem Foundation, which sponsored the professorship that brought me here in the first place, Novo, and all of these foundations that are um, showering researchers with the kind of funding that makes my American colleagues uh, jealous. Mm. It's fantastic. It's a great system, and I totally endorse it. I think that the model of the Stanford model, if I can call it that, in which a Silicon Valley has arisen mm. in the vicinity of a great university is, um, is something that has to be sponsored at a state level beyond simply uh, providing a tax incentive to foundations. That's great, but it's not enough. And I think that the investment, let's say primary investment, rather than this secondary investment by, by giving a tax break to foundations that can sponsor research, but a primary investment to recognize the validity of the Stanford model and that maybe even arguably the necessity of the Stanford model in which a great university or a great set of universities. And here I would include Chalmers and Lund and this whole Urson region and Danish Technical University, Northern European approach, that the relationship between, particularly in quantum technology, between money that flows into the university, that makes the universities the pride of the country, and the value to society reaped in the technology that emerges, again, this kind of Stanford picture, is something where I think politicians need to look at the universities as, um, as the uh, goose that lays golden eggs and treat the universities in that way uh, every day. What the Danish Foreign Ministry is hoping to get out of this initiative is, is actually to try and look a little bit into the future. How, how, how will technology change the world? How do we prepare ourselves best for that? How, you, how do we make better decisions based on you know, scientific research or the current state of play for technologies? Um, and I think you know, you've helped us by giving us a masterclass on where quantum computing, quantum research is today. Uh, so I really want to thank you, Professor Charles Marcus, for, for being with us today. Um, We'll probably have to come back and ask some additional questions at, at one stage, but, but you've certainly enlightened us in a, in a very, very useful way. Uh, so it's been great to be with you here at the Niels Bohr Institute at the University of Copenhagen. Thanks a million. My pleasure. Great to be here. This was another episode of Techplomacy Talk, researched and developed by the Office of Denmark's Tech Ambassador in Silicon Valley, Copenhagen, and Beijing. My name is Søren Peter Knudsen, and I'm the one doing the editing to bring you this month's episode. If you like what you just heard, please share it with someone you know, and don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Finally, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests, please reach out on Twitter using the handle DKTechAMB. Techplomacy.